Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Until she finally received patent number 3,277 on July 14, 1885. I don't think you said that number right. I think, I think you said 300, 200, <laughs> like 3,200. <No! laughs> I was so proud. <laughs> I have a hard time saying big word, big words and big numbers. numbers. 322,000. Welcome to season nine of She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season's theme is tools and inventions. We will be talking about ladies that invented something or were involved in the development of a tool used in our field. Yes, we are very excited to see all of the things that our ladies invented. Oh, yeah. We briefly mentioned it during our wrap up episode, but it's going to be really interesting where our ladies will line up regarding patents. I mean, I'm not sure if every woman we talk about will have a patent, but to those that do, I wonder if it'll be like an ongoing theme, like to see how many patents our ladies will rack up. That's so true. We should keep count. Ooh, should we make it a competition? Like whichever one of us has the most patents at the end gets bragging rights. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's keep count and share the results during our wrap up. A bit of competition. We shall see who comes out on top. On top. All right. (laughs) (laughs) This season just became a little bit more exciting, Mm -hmm. but. Before we begin the competition, we have to say thank you to everyone that continues learning with us. Thank you for joining us again and for your support. Yes. Thank you, listeners. Let's do this. Today, we will be discussing Sarah E. Good, the person who patented the cabinet bed, the precursor to the famous Murphy bed. I'm Nergeri Rivas. At the moment of this recording, I'm celebrating She Builds Podcasts third year anniversary by eating sushi in Houston, Texas. 
Hi, I'm Jessica Rogers, celebrating our She Builds podcast anniversary. By after recording this, I will be going to Daytona Beach tomorrow. And uh, I'm based out of Miami, Florida. Hey there, I'm Lizzie Rahr, and I'm celebrating our anniversary by floating the Russian River tomorrow in San Francisco, California. All right. So a quick disclaimer. The three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We are just sharing stories about the information that we find. So if we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Send us a comment and we will all continue learning. This season, we're going to be discussing a lot of ladies and their patents. So I think it would be a good idea to do a quick little deep dive into patents. Oxymoron. (laughs) Quick little deep dive. (laughs) I love it. It's subjective. Yes. Well, personally, I knew very little about patents before this season started. So I wanted to learn a little more like Mm -hmm. What exactly is a patent and what all is involved in getting it? I don't know, but I'm about to find out. (laughs) That's right. I'm also really intrigued to hear about it. And I think it'll give us a better idea of what our ladies had to go through in order to get these patents, right? It's not like you just say, hey, by the way, I want to patent this. And they're like, sure thing. (laughs) (laughs) Here you go. Fill out this form. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, sure. I think we all have an idea about it in pat in passing, like, you know, uh, you the idea of patenting, patenting. Oh, my God, this is going to be so hard this season with that word. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But you like you want to patent something. So no one takes credit for it. Like that's as far as I get. Like I'm going to claim it so that no one can say that they did it. So actually learning about this and the process, it's going to be nice to know for ourselves and for our future selves if we ever want to invent something. So, yeah, there you go. Let's start with what is a patent? A patent is a type of intellectual property that gives its owner the legal right to exclude others from making, using or selling an invention for a limited period of time in exchange for publishing the invention. So it's basically a right given to people that invent something new and useful. It doesn't automatically give people the right to sell their invention, but it stops others from being able to sell that invention. Got it. Mm -hmm. Now, if we take it a step back further, the word patent comes from the Latin word patere. Yes, which means to lay open. So in other words, to let anyone see what your patent is all about. There used to be all sorts of patents like land patents, which we now know them as deeds or printing patents, which we know them today as copyrights. Right. So today you can't patent a business name. That would be a trademark. And you can't patent a book, a play or a song. You get a copyright for those. Mm-hmm. Patents are for physical things that you can use. And the first patents, as we know them today, started in Venice in the 1400s, but supposedly they were inspired by a system in Jerusalem. Hmm. Mm. Well, the U.S. passed the first Patent Act on April 10th, 1790, and it was called An Act to Promote the Progress of Useful Arts. What a title. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, so the first patent that was filed under this new act was approved on July 31st, 1790. It was filed by Samuel Hopkins of Vermont for a method of producing potash. What is potash? (laughs) It sounds like the name of hash brown before it became hash brown. (laughs) It's like when someone doesn't know to call it a hash brown, but it's like, it's a hash, but it's a potato. (laughs) Potash. Potash. Well, it is is nothing to do with potatoes. (laughs) Oh, no. That sounds like a missed opportunity there. It's potassium carbonate, which, Uh and apparently... Potash is used in fertilizers a lot, but it's also a low sodium alternative for baking soda, apparently. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so that was the first patent. Baking <laughs> and soda. Our 17- version is way cooler. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How can one patent a hash brown, though? Like, <laughs> I bet you McDonald's you got something on their little hash brown, just saying. <laughs> Don't oh fault God. it. <laughs> okay. Well, in 1793, the Patent Act was revised, <laughs> and then it happened again in 1836, and it got really overhauled in that second revision. So the 1836 version, they implemented a much more intensive application process. And from 1790 to 1836, there were 10,000 patents granted. And from 1836 to the American Civil War, around 80,000 patents were granted. So they implemented a more intensive application process, but people were patenting like left and right. It sounds like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it didn't stop them. Let's talk about the steps of getting a patent for all the listeners that are curious about this just as much as we are. Okay, so first you have to search the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to make sure that your idea hasn't been patented. Ain't nobody got time to work on something somebody already done did. Mm-hmm. No way. Yeah. And it would probably be a good idea to find a patent attorney to guide you through the process. Then, you know, you can figure out what type of patent you need because there are different kinds like a utility, a design or a plant patent. And each of them have their own process. Once you know what type of patent you want to get, then you want to file a provisional patent application in case someone later says that they had the idea before you did. Because U.S. patent law is a first to file system, not a first to invent. That's important to remember. Mm -hmm. You can file your application by mail, but nowadays it's the 20th century, y'all. It's easier to go to USPTO website and file online. Bam. It's the 21st century, though. Do we care? It is the 21st century. (laughs) It was the 20th century last century. It was was a test if you're paying attention. Clearly, I wasn't. Because I was like, yeah, you go to the 20th century. She's like, yeah, it is. All right. So then you start the formal application. You have to include a specification, which includes an abstract background summary, detailed description and your conclusion, including the ramifications and scope of your patent. This generally takes one to three years to process a patent application. Good luck. (laughs) You know, I will say, though, like that's a long process. It's longer than I thought. Yeah. Yeah. 
Worldwide, the number of patents being filed has been slowly increasing, but in technologically advanced countries like France, Japan, Spain, the UK, and us, <laughs> it's been actually going down. There's a few ideas about why this might be. Some people think it's because humans have been reaching their brain limits, what? which I think that's the funniest <laughs> and saddest reason out of all of them. <laughs> okay, so I've never heard of someone reaching brain limits before. But I've, I've heard this kind of conversation come up because it reminds me about when people talk about originality, because everything feel I say this in quotes, feels like it's been done. Mm. I, I think that's what people feel or like that's that's why they might not patent things. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, it sounds like it's like a lack of inspiration, a lack of curiosity and the determination because sure, they have a good idea. But once they hear it takes one to three years, they're like, forget about it. But <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but OK, let's go back into the history and the barriers to getting patents before we knew that it took one to three years. And let's talk specifically about uh, the patent laws in the U.S. and the several barriers that African-Americans faced when applying for patents. So way back when, slave owners would allow those that they enslaved to apply for patents. But the slave owners still held ownership of the patent process and, of course, the patent profits. For those that were free, for those that were enslaved that were free, they didn't have any obstacles to secure their patents. However, in 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court ruling, also known as the Dred Scott decision, declared that enslaved people were not citizens of the United States and therefore they couldn't vote, hold office or obtain patents. This also includes things like owning said patents or property, a.k.a. land patents, a.k.a. deeds. So. After the Civil War, African-Americans were recognized as citizens and were again able to secure patents. So for women in the U.S., historically, they were precluded from obtaining patents also, even though in Section 1 of the 1790 Patent Act, it does include the term she. But at this time, married women couldn't own property under their own name. They also didn't have any rights to income that they made, including income from things they invented which is bananas, but it's how the world worked at that time. Mm -hmm. Over the next mm -hmm. few hundred years, the gender gap has shrunk, but it's definitely still a thing. Hey, designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if, if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit him with two levers if you like. <laughs> <laughs> the official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving. 
but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. In the UK, only 8% of inventors were female as of 2015. We can attribute this to the historical barriers we mentioned before, but also that women are underrepresented in what we'd consider, quote, patent-intensive professions such as STEM. There's also talk that this gender gap within patents is also because of an internal bias in the patent system. Yep. This is good that we could provide a history lesson on patents. In the last wrap-up, it was astonishing to know some of these statistics that we talked about in the wrap-up. But now that we have this context set in place, I'm so excited for this season. I believe all of our ladies would have patented something now in hindsight. So to know the process and the barriers set before them, I got goosebumps. Like... Gotta roll my sleeves down. Like, it's got chills. This feels like a good place to start our story about Sarah E. Good. What do you think? Okay. Let's do this. The time was 1850 or 1855. (laughs) The place, Toledo, Ohio. Sarah Elizabeth Jacobs was born. Her parents were Oliver Jacobs, a waiter and carpenter, and Harriet Jacobs, organizer of the Ohio Anti-Slave Society in Toledo, which also happened to be a stop on the Underground Railroad. Yay! So awesome. Sarah was born into slavery, but in 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation happened and Sarah was free. Eventually, her family moved to Chicago, Illinois. There, she met and married Archibald Good, a stair builder and upholsterer. They had all girls, Estella, Insa, Harriet, Edna, and Sarah. Wow, that's a lot of girls. Also, a stair builder is so specific. Like, did he have a stair specialty? Like a certain type? Like a spiral staircase? Or maybe he knew all of them and did them all well. I'm just, I'm very intrigued. Yeah. Also, I think it's cute that they had all girls and all of their girl names. Stella, Edna. Cute. Cute. By the 1880s, Sarah and Archibald opened a furniture store together in Chicago. They were in a city, right? So lots of apartments with little space. A lot of their customers needed small, multifunctional furniture. Some of their clients would also complain that they didn't even have enough space to fit a bed and storage space. So this inspired Sarah to build a foldable bed that could fold into a cabinet or roll-top desk with space for storing papers and writing tools. Genius. Living in a city and trying to maximize space, I can definitely see how this would be a huge game changer. Oh, yeah. Sarah was able to get the weight of the bed just right so that it could easily be folded, but then also have enough counterweight for it to be supported from the center and for it to stay open when it got unfolded. Yeah, that would be 
critical because you don't want it to fling back or get folded up inside of it like a cartoon. That's I mean, that's what I'm like imagining. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, why yeah. do I why do I picture that so vividly? Right. Because <laughs> we've seen it. Yeah. In cartoons. <laughs> Memory unlocked. She knew she had a revolutionary invention on her hands. So she followed one of our advice from before. She hired the attorney. George P. Barton to help her file the paperwork for a patent. And they went for it in November 1883. Nice. I'm glad she was proactive and got legal help. Yeah, I hope this turns out well. The whole process was $35 in fees and almost two years of waiting, getting rejected, revising her application and resubmitting until she finally received patent number 300 22,177 on July 14, 1885. This made her one of the first Black women to receive a patent in the U.S. Yay! Way to go, Sarah. Yes! Ladies, this was the precursor to the famous Murphy bed. In theory, I think Murphy beds are so cool. I've always wanted one. So to learn that Sarah's invention was one of the stepping stones towards the Murphy bed was really neat. It is really neat. I think they're cool. I know, right? And it's really cool to find out that a woman invented the bed that would inspire the Murphy bed, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Sarah was invited to exhibit her flat folding bed at the 32nd Annual Illinois State Fair, and she was part of a Chicago Tribune article from September 1884 about the event. Amazing. So glad that her invention got recognized at that time. Yeah, it must have been a really big deal. Yeah, I bet. By 1885, Sarah and her husband had a furniture store at 513 State Street in Chicago. The building where the store was located was the Bennett Medical College of Eclectic Medicine and Surgery. I just really wanted to say that because it sounds like such a random piece of info. (laughs) (laughs) It's so random. But like I have questions. Was the store in the College of Medicine or like the school owns the building and they rent a space for them? I was like... (laughs) I had this image of a doctor's office and then you walk into the waiting room and there's also a furniture store there, like kill two birds with one stone kind of thing. (laughs) That is actually a really good idea, right? Like (laughs) sometimes you're waiting at the doctor's office for so long, you would probably buy a piece of furniture. Exactly. And then like the furniture that you wait on could be for sale. Like, (laughs) well, going back to Lizzie's question, the goods rented Space from the college. So Sarah was the tenant and the college was the landlord. Gotcha. That makes sense. Mm, okay. Y'all, Sarah also got invited to the Paris Exposition of 1900 to be a part of the Exhibit of American Negroes organized by W.E.B. Dubois, Thomas J. Calloway, and Henry E. Baker. I could not find more information on how many people were a part of the exhibition, but she was one of four black women that were being featured. The exhibition ran from April to November 1900 and more than 50 million people saw it. Wow. And this lives on to this day. The exhibit of American Negroes is housed at the Library of Congress. 
So Sarah's work should be there. Just hanging out, being cool. Wow, that is amazing. I'm so glad that she was able to go and that her work is still being showcased to this day as it should be. Yes. I mean, this is, I mean, this is epic. I mean, it's so, okay. We briefly talked about W.E.B. Du Bois in episode 32 when we talked about Amaza um, and her time in New York. And when we talk about that, we talk about this whole thing about W.E.B. Du Bois. But it's great to know that Sarah's work was recognized and that she was able to travel outside of the U.S. and that it still lives on at the Library of Congress. Like, that is so good. That's so amazing. Mm -hmm. Five years after going to Paris, Sarah passed away in Chicago on April 18, 1905, and is buried at Graceland Cemetery, which is a large historic cemetery in Chicago. She wasn't that old. That's really sad. Mm -hmm. I wonder what other amazing things she could have come up with. But I'm really glad, again, that her invention was recognized while she was still alive to enjoy it. Right. Yes. Uh, So, yeah, she was in her 50s. We didn't get an exact uh, year for her birth, but she would have been in her 50s. Um, But that's not old at all. So, uh, yeah. But Lizzie, like you said, her work was known worldwide. So also knowing the history about patents that we gave at the beginning of the episode, it gives everything that she was able to accomplish so much weight, you know, like she was able to do Mm -hmm. it despite all the odds. True. And Sarah has a few posthumous recognitions. For starters, in 2001, the state of Virginia established February 25th as African-American Scientists and Inventors Day. And Sarah was mentioned in the inauguration. Lovely. As she should be. Mm -hmm. Then she was honored in 2012 when the city of Chicago public school system opened the Sarah E. Good STEM Academy. The high school is a Pathways in Technology, aka P-Tech, school. They find high school students internships in the fields of their choice and also offer courses that count towards college credits for the students. Oh, I love this. Hopefully the students who attend the school learn about the namesake of the school and her amazing accomplishments. Also, this program sounds really cool. Yeah, we could have benefited from something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's also a children's book by Vivian Kirkfield about Sarah and her invention. It's called Sweet Dreams, Sarah, and it was published in 2019. Cute. That's so cute. I need to look it up. Yeah, we need to get this book for all our children, for all our friends with children. Yeah, <laughs> for our children friends. <laughs> Children, All the children friends. that we know of <laughs> <And> the future. <laughs> well, ladies, it's time for a karyatid. A karyatid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek style building. In each episode, we present a karyatid, a woman who's working today, furthering the profession through their work and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. Drum roll, please. <laughs> Nada Debs. Nada. 
Nada Debs is extra special because not only is she an amazing furniture designer, she is a listener suggestion. Thank mm. you very much to Yasmin Bulwam for nominating Nada for us today. Yay! We love a listener Yay. suggestion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. Keep them coming. Nada is a Lebanese designer who grew up in Japan and studied design at the Rhode Island School of Design in the United States. Today, she runs her design firm in Beirut. And similar to Sara, Nada also has a store. Y'all, we can shop her products and furniture online today. <gasps> so fun. I can't wait to check Cute. it out. Yes. Also, just like Sara, Nada listens to her clients and creates pieces that are beyond form and following function. They answer the client's needs and resonate with the culture and emotions of the users. She's impressive, y'all. She has an experiential collaboration with Kohler for Design Miami. I'll put a link to that on the show notes so that y'all can learn all about it. Amazing. I'm looking forward yeah. to checking out that link. Yeah. Yeah. And I was looking at it pretty fast. So I don't know if it's still physically somewhere that you could check out, Jessica. Yeah. So Design Miami is basically an event, but it's open, I think, all year round now. But it's where all these like furniture and like product designers showcase their work. It's like a really cool place. I used to go a lot when I was in high school. But uh, yeah, I I want to know about this and I want to see if I can see it in person that'd be so cool and take pictures oh yeah of course or it did happen adventure yeah <laughs> <laughs> before we leave today we have an agora wee, wee, wee. Wee. all right y'all so in greek society the agora was the central meeting place of the city where news was shared so now we are going to share some good news and have y'all share the excitement and wins with us Today, we're celebrating births. First, congratulations to Kelly B for giving birth to her second child, Riley. And secondly, congratulations to Jose G for the birth of his first child, Joaquin. Yay! Babies everywhere. So listeners, let's continue to share great news from you. If you have news to share, big or small, please send them to our email, shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Let's celebrate your accomplishments together. Before we say goodbye, we want to say thank you to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, and most of all, muchas gracias to all of you for listening. We also want to give a special shout out to the website Black Past for all the information they share about Sarah E. Good. Remember to check out our show notes for links to all of our resources on this episode, as well as pictures of projects we've talked about. We hope that you enjoyed learning about Sarah and Nada along with our banter and that you are inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L Media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your furniture designers, your Murphy bed users. Tell them all. 
Tell him to give us five stars on iTunes and Spotify and write us a review. This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebospodcast at gmail.com, leave a comment on our website, shebospodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebospodcast and on Twitter at shebospod. Hasta luego! Bye. Bye! Worldwide, the number of patents being filed has been slowly increasing, but in technology advanced countries like France, Japan, Spain, the UK, and us, it's been actually going down. Technologically? Yeah, should I? I didn't want to say first world countries. Well, I know, but you just said technological advance. Like you didn't say technologically. Oh. <laughs> it wasn't the term. It was how you said it. Wasn't the term. It was the. It was like you. Tec- <laughs> technologically, technologically, yes. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.